Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Mark Cohen, who's a pioneer in every sense of the word. In 2008, he founded ClearSpire, at the time a revolutionary concept around being a virtual law firm. Since then, he's been a leading thinker around the evolution of the profession and the legal ecosphere. I first met Mark in 2010 when he was still at ClearSpire, and I've been an avid follower and friend ever since. We had a wide-ranging conversation. We covered topics such as how running a business has influenced his thinking about the delivery of legal services, how the digital transformation is upon us in the profession, and how he's trying to help the education component of that to an organization called the Digital Legal Exchange. And we talked about how, given his experience as a business person and how that informed his success as a change agent in the industry, how we can embody those concepts and teach them to new lawyers and law students. It was a great conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Mark, how are you? Thanks for joining us today. It's a great pleasure, Steve. It's been too long. It has been too long. How have you been riding out the uh, pandemic? Have you, have your travel been shut down? I know you tend to get around the world. How have you handled uh, that? Well, as do you. Uh, well, I get it. I handle it by um, enjoying being at home, um, finding uh, interesting things to write about, talking to people like you who intrigue me. How about you? Uh, pretty much the same way. It's. Uh, uh, like, like you, I've, we've been at this now longer than either one of us would care to admit. Uh, and so there's, there was a certain piece of it where the forced, uh, I won't say isolation, but getting forced off the road, there was a certain piece that came with that to say, I could do some, you learn to do work virtually in a way that we hadn't been forced to learn it. Before, well, even though the tools were there, we just didn't do it that way. And it's exactly. been, it's been a great. I've I've actually learned a lot through the experience. I'm ready for it to be over. But yeah. I've learned a lot for it. Yep. No, I think we all have, and I will tell you, Steve. You know, it's someone who has. Uh, you said the tools that have been there uh, are there and have been there. Uh, I agree with you. You know, I'm someone who has has not been traveling. Uh, working remotely now for about two decades. So um, it's really nothing terribly new or different to me with the caveat that you know, I can't get on an airplane. But uh, I think this will be one of the first times in my life I will actually be rather happy to get on an airplane. I've been on an airplane in over a year, which is the longest stretch I've been off of air travel for 40 years. And so I take my first flight uh, here in a couple of weeks to go back up to Chicago. Uh, and I, I'm actually kind of looking forward to it where I didn't used to look forward to getting on an airplane yet again. Yeah, and it's probably not a coincidence that Chicago will hopefully by then have unthought and uh, it's, it's certainly a splendid place in the spring and summer. It is indeed, it is indeed. Well, Mark, you, you've had the most fascinating career. Uh, you write uh, books, essays, blogs, you comment on the legal industry, you're an educator, you're a lawyer, uh, people find you work on Forbes, Legal Mosaic, you teach at Georgetown. It's sort of an amazing path. Is it the path you thought you'd be on if when you started becoming a lawyer? 
uh, several decades ago? That's a great question. I, I guess I would answer that I hope it would be uh, taking different twists and turns because I remember when I started, you know, there were, as you know, Steve, we, we started about the same time back when electricity was just coming into popular use. Back then, as you well know, as well as I do, that uh, there weren't that many options. You either went into private practice, you went into academics, perhaps you, you know, did some stints in government. Um, but, you know, being a lawyer was synonymous with practicing law. There were very few exceptions. Today, as I tell young people, there are so many more career options. So I guess I just sort of ridden that crest about 20, 25 years ago, decided that I was very intentionally going to disengage from the practice of law and get much more into um, the industry and the business of delivering legal services. Was that sort of the clear spire moment? Uh, yes. Actually, uh, there was a slight uh, precursor to clear spire. Uh, I, uh, early on, I was uh, dawdling around in pure business for a year or two, and I was working with an Indian outsourcing company that happened to be covered by, uh, was one of the darlings of um, Tom Friedman's wonderful book, The World is Flat. It was a company called Emphasis. And uh, so when the book came out, Emphasis invited me to lunch with Tom Friedman and I started talking about, you know, the legal industry and how I thought it was a great opportunity to flatten the legal industry. And I asked him what he thought and said, well, why don't you start a company and let me know how it goes? So I started an early LPO. That was really the uh, impetus to say, you know, I think we can move up the complexity chain. And that's what really gave rise to ClearSpire. But I remember very vividly sitting in our conference room with you, and you were, you know, it just uh, fairly dropped my jaw that here's the managing partner of a very, very fine law firm who is actually a true believer in what it was that we were doing. I thought it was great. It was a fascinating, I remember that uh, meeting as well in, in the conference room in D.C. And it was, yeah. it was fascinating what you guys were doing. And I've always wondered, the Tom Friedman story is fabulous because I always wondered what, because up to that point, if you look at your resume, it's, a, it's an impressive resume, but it, it looks like a resume of lawyers as our generation tended to be. Yeah. AUSA, a big law partner, you know, started your own your own law firm. And then comes this moment, right, where, yep. where you have lunch with Tom Friedman. Yeah. Well, actually, Steve, I will inject going back into ancient history. One other thing. Uh, while I was a practicing lawyer, I had the uh, good uh, fortune, I guess, to have Three of my clients, all large insurance companies, they were just so frustrated by their outside counsel. And uh, they asked me if I would basically serve as a facto general counsel. You can imagine how that endeared me to the general counsel of the company. <laughs> sure. So I had that experience where I really saw firsthand from their seats, you know, sort of some of the challenges that they had with uh, their providers. And then that coincided with a federal judge in New York that appointed me a receiver of a very large international aviation parts 
company, um, who were very successful, except they didn't share their success with the IRS. And so I was appointed to repatriate about $125 million of back tax money. That caused me to have my first pure business experience because, you know, I was functioning both as the de facto CEO of the business as well as a lawyer. And it kind of taught me that, you know, lawyers can be business people too. And fortunately, I, I had some smart business people who could you know, sort of tell me what I needed to know. But those different perspectives of uh, legal services, you know, practicing it, uh, overseeing it at scale, and then, you know, running the business. And we spent a lot of money on legal fees across four continents. Um, really gave me, uh, I think, the kind of 360 degree perspective that I needed to figure out, hmm, I've been a customer as well as a manager and provider, but I as a customer, what would I want from the legal function? And that really, Steve, as much as the Friedman lunch, was the um, genesis for starting ClearSpire. That's that's fascinating. How So... I've often thought the same thing, that that experience running businesses or the experience of, of at least being in those shoes is an invaluable component of what it takes for people to think differently about the delivery of legal services and think. Have you thought about how to replicate your experience? You had a unique experience. It's not scalable to law students or anything else. Have you thought about in your, you, you teach at Georgetown, for example, as an adjunct professor. Have you thought about how to replicate that experience in the educational components of young lawyers coming in or even, even law firm partners to help them think differently about the practice? Uh, well, I, I, I have. Uh, and actually, Georgetown gave me a nice promotion, although uh, I then went on to Northwestern. So I, I've done a lot of teaching. And by the way, not just in the States, but around the world. So, so the answer is yes. What I tell um, young people is that um, you're coming at a really exciting time in the legal industry. You've got many more choices, but you're also coming at a challenging time because what you probably have learned at law school is, is something which, you know, often by itself uh, may create a bit of a critical thinking foundation, which I would argue a good education would have way before law school, but not everybody is that fortunate. But you've got to do a lot more than that. You're going to have to do a lot of learning on the fly because, as you know, Steve, just having a, a license to practice law, just having, you know, legal knowledge and maybe even some expertise uh, today is not going to be enough. And you've really got to, I think, as a lawyer, I think what, what's going on today, I'm curious what you think, is that there is a real question, not on the part of the legal profession, but on the part of its customers and clients who are saying, what do we need from the legal function? What is it that lawyers should be doing? And what I'm hearing, and I suspect you're hearing a lot of the same thing, is from a business perspective, because you and I were both in the corporate realm as opposed to more of the sort of retail realm, uh, which is another really interesting I think, opportunity spot. But uh, in the corporate realm, 
this is not just buzzwords to say, you know, you've got to partner with clients, you've got to like align with business. You really do. And so young lawyers today, I would say, have to, you know, certainly, they don't have to be uh, data analysts. They don't need to be actuaries, but they do need to know a little bit about how data is, is being used by business and how increasingly it's going to be used by the legal function. They should learn a little bit about project management. They, they should learn about different things. And I think the greatest opportunity for young people, and I'll close this down, because I, I'm very passionate about you know, trying to help younger people. I think the greatest opportunity they have is to meld passions that they have that they didn't necessarily associate with being a lawyer and bring them into what it is that they do in their legal careers. So, for example, there are a number of lawyers today, particularly younger ones who came of age, you know, during the, the internet and computer age, who are very interested in different aspects of technology. Technology as technology isn't going to make the difference, but um, technology applied to solve problems uh, or to do things more efficiently from a customer perspective is tremendous. So, you know, there are different ways to forge a legal career today than certainly there were when we were coming up. And in terms of partners, I would just say, don't be complacent and think this is going to go on forever. I know you've written very thoughtfully about this. Nothing lasts forever, just ask Kodak uh, and any number of other iconic brands. You know, there's a change. It doesn't mean that it's all gloom and doom, but it does mean that you can't just rely on the same old tricks that you've been, you know, performing for years. You've got to learn some new tricks. I think that's right. And you look back on it, I think both probably you you share my sort of frustration that business does hasn't changed as quickly as certainly I think it should. And I think most buyers of legal services think it should. But the flip side is if you look back, we talked about when we both started and you look back at where it is now with uh, whether uh, you, you coined the term enterprise legal service providers alternative legal service providers, law companies, whatever you call them, big four tech companies, the diversity of providers in the legal service delivery space is has transformed the business in a way that you have to sort of stop and take a look at it and compare it where it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago to appreciate the difference in it. And I have the same conversation when I teach law school classes as well, students will come up and say, okay, I see what you're talking about. I see the need to think differently about process, about technology, but I've got a job with a big law firm. What happens when the partner says, I just want to do it the same way? I'm sure you get the same I do. question. I'm curious. I'll tell you my answer, but I'd like to hear yours first. Well, um, you know, depending on whether or not I've had any student and whether, you know, I think they can sort of take it. I say, you know, I'm not inquiring whether you're uh, uh, independently wealthy or trust the ferrying, uh, nor do I particularly want to know from a current interest how much law school debt you may have. But um, if you, you know, are not underwater financially and this is not floating your boat, um, then I would say there are a lot more options 
available to you. Uh, so long as you don't have to optimize your short-term economic return. Um, and if you do that, you know, I've encouraged lots of people to you know, leave big law and do other things. Now, for some people, obviously, they, they need it for financial reasons. And, and for still others, uh, depending on the firm and depending on the individual, there may still be a very good opportunity in the law firm. You know, it's, it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all, uh, you know, kind of advice. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, and I tell my own children this, just be passionate about one thing that's legal and pursue it. Uh, because if you love what you're doing, and clearly I know you don't love what you're doing, I didn't love what I was doing when I made lots and lots and lots of money and had lots of nice hats on the back because I realized that... Um, my passion for it was dwindling, and that was the time to do something different. But I think for a lot of people, um, you know, it's it, it's very hard for them to say, "I'm going to walk away for some, from something that you know, I, I I have a certain degree of social standing, and I'm making lots of money, and I'm not critical of them. We're all made different." Yep. No, I agree. I, my advice is usually much the same, which is, you know, it depends on your own individual financial circumstances, frankly. Uh, but I also encourage people to make sure you understand the culture of the firm you're going into and understand what they're willing to accept and how they're willing to listen to the voices of associates. Because I think that the more younger generations can be change agents within law firms and show perhaps some of the more senior attorneys that there is a better way to drive services, the more effective it might be in continuing the transformation of, of law firms and the way they deliver legal services, particularly in technology. Yep. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Steve. And uh, I just say that, um, you know, I think there's a great lost opportunity uh, on the part of any organization that doesn't really um, allow young people, particularly young people who demonstrate, you know, a great passion and a great um, aptitude for certain things. Um, I, I think, you know, that, that would be, in my mind, part of diversity. Having different age groups at the table, different skill sets, it, it goes way beyond geographies and ethnicities. I think, you know, the legal industry really should be um, more diverse than it should, because as you well know, um, there are many more skill sets now that are required to deliver legal services effectively and particularly yeah. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting learning experience for lawyers to work with other allied professionals. Uh, but the more yes. the more people can develop that skill, and the more they can effectuate that partnership with other professionals the more valuable their their legal advice, their legal service delivery is going to be to clients and the more successful they're going to be. And I think you're seeing that in the market. I, I assume you see the same thing in the market. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's interesting because years ago I was a, uh, a company trial lawyer and, uh, you know, I was exposed uh, to uh, – corporate boards, I was exposed to the C-suite, and most of all, I was exposed to experts on whom I relied in cases, you know, to teach me what I didn't know. Um, and, you know, I realized, my gosh, 
that was the part of the process I liked the best because you know I was learning from these really smart people and the the the, the, the timetable for learning what I had to learn was very compressed as you know. So um, that gave me a little bit of a taste for what interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary work could be like. Um, and today, you know, to be able to, to, to work with a lot of business people and technology people, for me, it's, it's really exciting. Um, I like it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. I was thinking about my own experience. I, I was a, a trial lawyer in the labor and employment law space uh, growing up. And the most interesting part of it to me was learning how people did their jobs and how they operated their business, because you had to understand that, to understand the the case you were handling. And that was way more interesting to me than the, the particular legal problem. The legal problems didn't seem that difficult. The right. way people managed their business and operated it was always fascinating to me. But you you touched on technology, and I, I, I want to come back to that, uh, because um We've both been involved in trying to use technology to augment the power of people and augment the delivery of legal services. And and one of the barriers, I've 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 wondered why that hasn't happened more quickly than one would think. And one of the barriers that I've always thought exists there is sort of a lack of understanding by lawyers and by corporate legal departments and by law firms about the utilization of technology, both from what it can do and what it can't do, as well as how you utilize it as part of your strategic plan, how you how you learn about it. If I read correctly, one of your more recent ventures, the Digital Legal Exchange, is going to do something about that. Am I reading that correctly? Uh, you are, Steve. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I think that is a wildly interesting venture. We're a not-for-profit uh, membership organization. We, after about a year and a half in the making, uh, in terms of you know, doing market analysis, not just law, but technology, business, um, we, um, we've launched and we've got about uh, 12 member companies, all Fortune 250 companies, uh, multinationals. Our purpose is um, to align the legal function with business, to create value for business and its customers, to extract more value from the legal function. Tell me what you mean by that, Mark, when you say aligning the business. Sure. Well, as you know, Steve, historically, the legal function, particularly uh, in-house lawyers, has been to be, you know, the first, uh, well, not the first line of defense, but to be enterprise defendants, right? To keep the company at the major trouble. Um, and then it kind of got to the point where business was saying, well, you know, you got to do a better job kind of managing yourself. Um, you know, there are such things as budgets that govern the rest of the business units in the you got to start using data a little because everybody else does. You know, lawyers, as you know, generally give opinions of very often with anatomical parts. My, my nose tells me this or my gut tells me that. Business, <laughs> you know, business, they're, they're doing it um, a lot by the numbers. Now, that's not to say that they are not, you know, drawing from those numbers and using judgment. Of course they are. But the judgment is more informed based on real life empirical data. These are, you know, these are some of the things that um, 
lawyers, you know, it's almost like a cultural thing. It's it's an indoctrination and learning thing. That lawyers, you know, are, are taught to think that I do a good legal job, you know, and that's all I need to do. Whereas today, I think the business is saying, look, we want you to be much more proactive as enterprise defenders. We want you to be able to use data to say, look, um, you know, how can we reduce our, uh, not just reduce our, our litigation spend, but how do we reduce the number of cases filed against us? You know, so, so they expect legal to be more proactive, but at the same time, um, and we've done really interesting uh, market analysis on this. You know, we have what we call a digital alignment survey. We, we, we have uh, business people um, uh, from the organization are part of the membership, and then we have senior legal functions. And we, we basically do these surveys, we call it a digital alignment survey, and we measure according to different criteria how does the legal function operate in these ways? And how does the business think it operates? How effectively? And what are businesses' priorities and what are legal priorities? And you find, you know, that there is a digital divide. Um, and all the data in the business world says, you know, the top companies in the world, as you know, there is a huge difference between digitally mature companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Google, mm -hmm. and everybody else. And, you know, there are many reasons for that. But in those companies, um, they, they have been successful in part because there is no function within the company that is exempt from focusing on ways of improving the way they deliver service for the benefit of customers. And, you know, legal views its customers, as you know, Steve, um, lawyers will think of their customers, oh, the GC is my customer. Um, most of the time. But the reality is the customer is the company. And, you know, so the in-house lawyers, and there are a handful of uh, in-house functions that are doing this quite well now, are saying, well, okay, we're going to be more proactive as enterprise defenders. But we're going to start working with business units to identify and drive opportunities that are going to benefit the company and its customers. So, for example, I'll give you a real-life example. Really, the, 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 the founding father, I think, of the digital legal exchange is a, a guy called Bill Deppelman. Bill, as you may know, is a general counsel of a Fortune 150 company called DXC Technology. Bill, about four years ago, uh, had the guts and the dire need to, you know, sort of go outside traditional norms in connection with a very large corporate merger. And so he turned to a so-called law company, United Lex, um, and he rebadged or rebranded about 600 people from his legal team. And this wasn't just a cost-cutting problem. This was also a recognition that, you know, I, I need technological expertise, I need data expertise, and I don't have it. But this company, United Legend, does. So um, they are you know, now working as one unified team, albeit you know, um, getting paychecks from different sources. So they came to me about two years ago and said, you know, we'd really love to create a not-for-profit 
that is going to be able to scale the lessons that we learn um, from our own experience. And that's really what gave rise to the exchange. And um, that is now what we're doing with some of the largest companies in the world. We are really trying to you know, get the legal function to reimagine the possible, not just change for change's sake, but to change in such a way that it's really going to be able to work in a much more integrated fashion with other business units in such a way that it's really going to benefit not just legal, but the bottom line of the company and the ultimate you know, end user is going to say, that was a better experience. I think that sounds, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Do you think that it will result in changing in buying habits like the one you described with United Lex as part of the educational process? Or is that just a sophistication, growing sophistication of buyers looking for different skill sets? I think it's a growing sophistication of buyers. I think that, you know, the more the buyer really looks beyond, you know, forget about cost savings. Everybody, of course, has, even now, um, GCs have to worry about budgets. But cost savings and internal efficiencies are just the tip of the iceberg. Um, they're not even table stakes for digitally mature companies like Google and Amazon or any number of others. Um, what, what they're really interested in is they're interested in their customers and they're interested in new and different ways that they can, to quote from Jeff Bezos, delight their customers. Now, to a lawyer, to say delight your client or delight your customer almost sounds like silly, ridiculous. That's not our job. Our job is to deliver a product. But guess what? It's going to become your job. It's going to be, and I'll give you a real-life example, uh, drawn again from Bill Deckelman. Um, Bill was able, DXC Technology has these massive uh, master service technology agreements with other very large companies. Typically, you know, eight and sometimes, you know, nine-figure uh, contracts. And from the time that the prospective customer said, yes, I want to enter into this agreement with EXE, to the time the agreement was actually inked was 13 months. That's a hell of a long time for someone who wants a solution yesterday. Right. So one of the things that Bill did was he looked at, you know, he, he set up a, uh, a team and he said, how can we compress the sales cycle? And he was able to do that. And with the result that he was able to more than half the process, cut from 13 months down to about five to six months. With the result that um, two things very important happened. Number one, the company's sales went up. And number two, the company's net promoter score went up because people started saying, well, there used to be a huge pain in the ass to deal with, um, but now, you know, I got through this contract in a really short period of time. So that would be one of any number of examples I could give you of how the legal function by, you know, kind of reimagining what is its remit, why are they there, and then taking the initiative that's one of many examples of the kinds of things that we're working on with the exchange. I think it's a, I think it's a great venture. I think it's, it's fascinating what you guys uh, are doing, uh, Mark. 
as part of the exchange or maybe separate from the exchange, this increasingly diverse supplier base in the industry. You, you talked to one of your recent articles about the enterprise service provider space and talked about Allen and Overy and you talked about United Lex and the growth of some of these different service providers and, and where are you seeing the trend lines and have they been accelerated in the pandemic? And if so, do you think those changes are sticky when we come well, out of the pandemic? Yeah, that's another really good question, Steve. And I, I would just answer, uh, follow the money. And if you look at where the money is going, you would say, and this is all public information, United Lex uh, a couple of years ago got over, what, a half a billion dollars from one of the top companies in, in, in the world. Axiom has taken on, you know, a significant amount of capital. So what it says to me, and, you know, I'm sure as you do, I have from time to time been asked by some of these companies to, you know, give some opinions in terms of their due diligence. And obviously, we won't go into uh, any specifics here, but it's very clear that what they're looking for is um, they, they see the business of delivering legal services at scale as a great opportunity. Um, they see a trillion-dollar marketplace where you don't have, even as of right now, I think, you don't have a single provider who has more than a 1% market share. What other trillion-dollar industry could you point to that says that? You know, it, it is so fragmented. And, you know, these are smart money people. And so uh, I think, you know, to, to sort of sum it up, clearly, you know, they're looking for people with technological uh, tools that are going to make a difference. They're looking for people who have really seasoned management. And interestingly, it doesn't necessarily have to be a law-centric. In fact, I would argue that, you know, maybe a law-centric uh, senior management structure would be a liability. You need, you know, legal expertise mm -hmm. residents somewhere, but they can get a, a guy like you if they were lucky enough to, you know, be able to give them all the, you know, sort of domain expertise they need in terms of the business of, of, of delivering legal services, but they're looking for people, you know, increasingly in other industries, you know, who are migrating over to the legal space because they see it as this great, you know, sort of the last frontier. How many other trillion dollar industries are this immature from a business perspective? So I think, Steve, that's where the action is, and I think that's where the growth is going to come from. Not just because the law firms, you know, necessarily have to, you know, to use the Yiddish word, you don't have to say Kaddish, a prayer for the dead. But um, I do think that you've got to start thinking, if, if I were managing a partner again, I'm dying to ask you, but you're asking the questions today, maybe I will. <laughs> You know, what would you be telling your colleagues, um, now that you're chairman emeritus, for me, would be, what are we and what should we be, and how can we be differentiating the marketplace? And who should we be collaborating with? Those are some of the things that I would be asking. What about you? No, I think those are very similar questions to the one I ask, is understand that this marketplace is changing and that the competition is looking at the market differently. And it's not just the law firm down the street or the uh, law firm in the same seven cities 
that you happen to be in. It's it's law companies, it's the big four, it's technology companies. And why are those, understand why those organizations are prospering and growing because they're meeting a demand. Well, what demand are they meeting and what impact does that have on our business? And how do you want to be successful growing up? What what I tend to tell people is I've seen you hit the similar theme in your writing is there's a there's a difference between legal advice and the delivery of legal services. And what what are you in? What are you doing? Because if you're in the service delivery function, there's a lot of money you can make there and it's and it's great, but you can't operate as if it's the practice of law. So what do you want to be? How are you going to do it? And where do you want to compete recognizing the change has got to happen? And I think people are people are afraid, particularly lawyers, they tend to be afraid of changing, that they're afraid of what's next. And you know, part of the change management process has to be getting them comfortable with doing higher level work, doing stuff that requires more empathy, more human connection, the relationship piece. The intuition informed by data and technology, talking about technology, there's all these fears, as I know you know, technology is going to replace lawyers. Well, if you think it's going to replace lawyers, you don't understand what lawyers do. Right. Uh, but people are afraid of that, and you've got to sort of deal with their fears. But I don't think there's one right answer for any particular law firm or entity. It's 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 a there used to when you and I started, there used to be. Everybody did it the same way. They'd look at how the right. big firms did it, and that was a guidepost, and that's how you did it. And it's just not right. that way anymore. I agree. I agree. So where do you think the big four plays in all this, Mark? Hmm. Uh, well, um, they are certainly a force to be reckoned with. I think that for me, uh, there's one cautionary flag that I would raise um, on the big four is um, their own structure. Because, you know, structure means a lot, as you know. And uh, also sometimes, you know, cultures uh, are impacted by different structures. And let me be more specific with respect to the big four, because as you know, they, they are all, well, they no longer call themselves Swiss Marines. There's a new, you know, uh, name for it. But essentially, they are... Um, single-branded networks, and they are, each uh, member of the network has its own P&L. And so I think that that can lead to internal challenges um, within the organization. And so, you know, query are which members of the big four are truly all in to the legal marketplace. I think you could debate that. Um, so you take uh, Deloitte, for example, they've made a number of hires, but, you know, most of the hires that they've made are legal ops people, as opposed to, you know, people who, you know, have run large service organizations, particularly, you know, legal service uh, uh, organizations. And I think, as I would agree, they're two very different things. Yes, um, and, and so at this point, I would just say that the big four certainly have the capital to do it. They certainly have the brand recognition and the C-suite ties to do it. But and, and, and I'm sure they will, you know, do quite well, um, you know, because it's a, it's a big marketplace and they don't have to get, you know, 
25% market share to make a lot of money. But I, I kind of question, you know, from a cultural perspective, whether or not, you know, they're, they're really all in and whether they're suited for it. Um, so I would say that, you know, monitor them closely. There was a time when I thought they might eat law firms lunch uh, about five years ago, but now I'm a little less um, clear on that. Yeah. Well, Mark, we're, we're, we've run out of time. It's always fascinating talking to you. If people want to know more about the Digital Legal Exchange, where do they find you? www.d for David Lex, L-E-X, dlex.org. That's www.dlex.org. And you can continue to find Mark. You, you, your Legal Mosaic company blog has always got interesting stuff. You continue to write for Forbes. You're, you're easy to find, and I, I highly recommend your writings to anybody who's interested in this business. It's some of the most informed, intuitive writing around on the legal industry. So thank you for everything you're doing, and thanks for making time for us today. I appreciate it. I'm delighted that you reached back out, Steve, and uh, let's do it again sometime. You got a deal. Talk to you later, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.